your seats and as you do so turn with me to first John and chapter four. While all that's taking place, let me quickly say one or two words I've been missing in action now for about two months. So it's great to be back. Uh, I, I was out in Peru to begin with, training uh, missionaries for uh, the Heart Cry Missionary Society, and then moved on to India, where I was involved in uh, similar work. And uh, it's quite staggering to realize what the Lord is doing around the world. Uh, we, we tend to think of India primarily in terms of the Hindu uh, religion, and it's true, that's the major religion there. Uh, you have approximately 2% or 2.5% of Christians. But then when you think in terms of the entire population of India, the amazing reality is that there are more Christians in India than the entire Zambian population. Now, when you think about it that way, you realize that uh, God is doing a great work there in the sense that the, the difference between the early missionaries getting there, like uh, William Carey, whose life we studied here a few years ago, and David Livingstone coming here, again his life we studied here a few years ago, uh, is not that much. And yet to realize that indeed uh, God has his people there in the midst of all the persecution, uh, the church is going forward. And then lastly, I was out in Russia, again the same amazement, uh, you would have thought that the church there, having been under uh, communist rule for some time, which is militantly atheistic, that you would find hardly anything there happening Christian-wise. And yet it was amazing to find so many uh, Believers there, especially pastors, I was involved again in training uh, heart cry missionaries as well as doing a pastor's conference. Uh, so it's, it's encouraging uh, to realize what the Lord is doing around the world. And uh, on one hand, I definitely bring you greetings from all these uh, brethren in South America, Asia, and uh, the European part of, uh, of Russia. But on the other, it's just to, to realize that uh, we need to, to be praying for the extension of God's kingdom worldwide. Um, if you are sitting in that pew today and you are thinking that the, the biggest thing that has happened on the planet is uh, the death of Muhammad Ali, then you do need to wake up. Or Serena Williams failing to, to get a title uh, in tennis, then you, know, you do need to wake up. Or perhaps a few political parties in Zambia registering their presidents, running mates. Now those things are important, I don't doubt that. But as Christians, when we enter those, those closets to pray day by day, what are we praying about? Let's remember that in heaven, as the angels look down, there are things that are greater than those few items I've mentioned, which the media keeps pumping at us as though it's the most important thing that's happening. Let's remember that when angels look down, it's, it's those souls getting converted. It is those individuals growing in grace. It is those churches that are being planted. 
It's the pushing back of the domains of darkness. And let's be part of that in our closets as we pray. Let's be part of that. And as we listen to accounts like uh, the African Christian University, again, that's the whole point, realizing that we're talking about the extension of God's kingdom. And let's make sure we are a part of that. So I'm grateful for your prayers for me as I traveled. Uh, part of it involved um, a surgery, as most of you will, will have been informed about, and the Lord has continued. I'm not totally healed, uh, but with your ongoing prayers, uh, I'm definitely heading in the right direction. I'm excited to see what's happening on this side. At least there's been progress. And my appeal, I'm aware that uh, we'll soon be uh, asked to contribute financially. It's a one-off issue to just ensure that we have extra space. So when the deacons finally come up with how we are to contribute for this, again, it's, it's us. It's our church. Uh, the deacons felt it better instead of knocking down these walls that we first of all knock down these and knock down those. So let's make sure we rise to the occasion and uh, create extra space uh, for more people coming in. Thank you. I think those were the words I wanted to at least have off my chest before we read from the scriptures. So First John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I want us to commence our reading from verse 11, but then the message this morning will be from chapter 4 and verse 15. So let's begin from verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. I could have gone on, but since we're really stopping at verse 15, let me just read that again. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. I've been off the pulpit here for the last uh, two months, and consequently, let me quickly remind you of where we were last time. And that was in the 14th verse of this chapter, where the Apostle Paul says, we have seen and testify, rather the Apostle John, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the savior of the world. And what we said then was that Christianity is testifiable. It's not merely a mystical religion where we speak in terms of feelings, that this is the way I feel, I think I am a Christian, but it is testifiable, especially with respect to God sending his son into the world to save us from our sins. And so those who are genuine believers are people who should be able to speak in such terms as real convictions. Now, no doubt about it, John had first of all in mind the apostles themselves because they were the first recipients of this message. But remember, the whole book we are looking at is dealing with the subject of assurance of salvation. And consequently, John's concern 
as we shall be seeing even today, is that it's not just the apostles themselves that were able to, to testify in this way of what they had seen, but it is something that ought to be true of all of us who claim to be Christians, that we should be individuals who also testify in the same way. And you can't miss that from the 15th verse, because John, in his usual cyclic way of writing, is almost repeating what he has said in the previous verse. Except, as I've always told you, each time John seems to repeat himself, he adds something. And it is that extra that he adds that ought to be the major thought in that verse. So when you look at verse 15, first of all, he speaks about confession. Whoever confesses. And that's clearly related to what he had said in verse 14 when he said, and we have seen and testify. And what is the confession? That Jesus is the Son of God. Again, clearly, that is related to what he has said in verse 14, that we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And then there is the addition, and it is this. God abides in him, and he in God. That's the extra that John is interested in. And what on earth has he got in mind as he adds that extra thought? Well, clearly, it is the reality that confession of Christ is essential to salvation. It is an all-important proof that the heart of the matter, as far as salvation goes, is in you. Or putting it differently, if you are an individual who does not testify of Jesus Christ in this way, then even though you might belong to the people of God, outwardly speaking, through baptism, through church membership, through attending church services as you are this morning, the bad news is you are not a Christian. If this confession is not true of you. Now that's the Bible saying it. It's not me trying to be very hard on you. It's the Bible itself saying so. So let's spend the rest of this morning just looking at what John is telling us there. It's something that he has already been developing. First of all, the whole book is on assurance of salvation. But secondly, as he has moved on from verse 12 going downwards, it's very clear that John is continuing these proofs. In verse 12, it was the issue of love. He says there in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Clearly, the subject is that of love. And as we shall see in coming weeks, later on, John will come back to this because the whole passage is about love as proof that we are truly God's children. But then in verse 13, he brings in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. He says in verse 13, by this we know, again, there it is, evidence that we are in Christ, that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. So the presence of God's spirit in us is the evidence that we are Christians. 14 and 15 is really dealing now with this issue of confessing confessing as a further proof, as 
confessing. What do we learn from this then? First of all, it is the fact that God has no secret disciples. There's no category in God's mind where you can say, well, look, I have become a Christian, but because the environment is hostile, either in my home or in my workplace or in my school or wherever it is, the community in which I live, I will content myself to be a secret disciple. So as long as on my own I am praying, on my own, somewhere secretly, I am reading my Bible, that, that's, that God must be very happy. And he will say when I arrive in heaven, well done. In the midst of all that environment that was antagonistic to the Christian faith, you kept your faith. Yes, privately, but you kept your faith. Well done. I'm welcoming you into heaven. John is basically saying sorry. This aspect of testifying is not simply us who saw the Lord Jesus Christ and consequently have become preachers and spreading his word around this issue of testifying is supposed to be true of each and every person who claims to be a Christian. And so he says there, verse 15, whoever confesses, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, here is the reality about him. God abides in him and he in God. The phrase confess there has to do with saying the same thing. Saying the same thing. In other words, there is a reality and you are speaking that reality. And so in this particular case, the reality is that God has sent his son into the world. What are you doing? You are saying the same thing. You are acknowledging it. You are agreeing with God that this is true. But then it is not a mental activity. Because as I'm speaking here right now, I'm pretty sure at least quite a number of you are agreeing with me. You are acknowledging that what you are hearing is correct. But you are doing it in a non-verbal way. You are not saying it publicly. Well, confession here has to do with now you lisping it, saying it, bringing it out so that those who are near you or around you are able to say this is the position this individual has. He has said exactly what the claim is or this reality on this end. John has already been arguing for the fact that this is part of Christianity. Look quickly at chapter 2 and verse 23. We will be going back to it a few more times after this. Chapter 2 and verse 23. He says there, no one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. He's clearly tying it up with salvation there. We see the same in chapter 4, verse 2 and verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 2 and verse 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Again, 
the aspect of confession there is being brought out as a proof of salvation and then a failure to make this confession or confessing error, heresy about Jesus is being made to, to be shown as proof that you are not a Christian. Now clearly this confession, first of all, is at the point when a person professes to be a Christian. In other words, the first time you, you come forward and you say, I am now a Christian, those that are bringing you or accepting you into the Christian church will give you a, a doctrinal test. They will say to you, well, what makes you think you are a Christian? And most likely your answer will be something like this. And I believe that Jesus Christ came into the world and that he died on the cross for me. And that through his death on the cross, God has accepted me as his child. It is on that basis that then you are baptized and welcomed into the church. There is an initial confession. But it would be wrong to think that that's all that John is talking about here. John has in mind not only that initial confession, he also has in mind the ongoing confession. In other words, where you are, where you live, where you work, where you play, are you testifying to this truth? Are you, as it were, standing up on the side of God in the name of Christ, in the midst of all the unbelief that circles you, and saying, this is the truth concerning Jesus. He is the Son of God. He was sent into the world by God the Father in order to save us from our sin. Is that radiating out of you? Now, at the time this was being written, it was dangerous to say so. It was dangerous. If we can just quickly go to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, this was around the time that Jesus was on earth. I want you to notice how people were so hesitant to confess who he was. John chapter 9 and verse 22. John 9 and verse 22. There was some gentleman who was healed by the Lord Jesus. He was blind and now was seeing. And uh, the Jews were not too keen to have him testify who healed him. Let's begin from verse 18. John 9 verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered. This was their confession, you see. We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. This much we know. This reality we can confess, we can testify to. There's only one. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Now the truth is they knew. They knew who healed him. But it was dangerous to say so. So look at verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed 
that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. Don't bring us into these things. It was dangerous to do so. To acknowledge who Jesus was. You experienced social and religious being kicked out of people's lives. It had implications on your economic well-being as well. Because wherever it is you try and work, they would know you've been kicked out of the synagogue. They would not want to be identified with you. So here were individuals who knew a reality, but they were not willing to be identified with that reality publicly. And so they said, well, ask him. It's the way politicians often answer, isn't it? When they are being interviewed by journalists. And they say, well, look, uh, the journalists are asking them about something maybe to do with the president. And they tend to say, well, I can neither deny nor confirm that allegation. Safer to leave it like that than to answer and then the following day to hear there's been a, a press conference and there's been some reshuffling and you've lost your position. Chapter 12, exactly the same thing. Chapter 12 and verse 42. I begin reading from verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. About who? Jesus, the son of God. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And then you can see that this was not true salvation, because it says in verse 43, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now that's not salvation. When your heart has not been changed, to the point where you are willing to be ostracized by other people, by your parents, by your brothers and sisters, by your workmates. You're not willing to be identified with Jesus lest you lose in the eyes of other people. Then just know there's a big problem here. The heart has not been changed. So, those who live and work and mingle with you, are they individuals who know that you are a believer in the biblical Christ? The Jesus of the Bible and all that is said of him. Does that radiate through you deliberately, readily, Let's go back to our text because in order for this confession to be proof that you are saved, it must be around the truth concerning the person and work of Christ. Chapter 4 and verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Now remember... John is building up an argument here. He's not simply saying that we confess the person of Christ, but we also confess the work of Christ that he has spoken about in verse 14, remember. He said there, we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son, and listen to this, to be the savior of the world. Not simply who he is, the son, but also his work. 
the savior of the world. That he has come to live, he has come to die, he has come to be raised from the dead, he has come to be raised back to the right hand of the father in order that through him and through him alone we would experience salvation from sin. The question is, number one, is that what we believe? Is that what we believe? And then number two, is that what we are actually saying? You know, Christianity is, first of all, doctrinal. It is. Christianity is based on truth. The Christian church over the centuries used to put its belief system in front of you. In front of you. When the Reformation took place some five Hundred years ago, this coming year, 500 years ago. They came up with confessions. And they put forward, this is what we believe. And guess what? The Roman Catholic Church persecuted them to no end. Many of them were burnt at the stake, bent alive. They were being told to recant that statement. To say, no, this is not true. And because they insisted it was true, they were martyred, they were killed. And what, they were, what, what were they being killed for? Their confession what they were saying with their words, their doctrinal statement. In those days, going forward now another 100 years, when the Baptist denomination began, it was exactly the same thing. The Baptists again put forward the reason why they were not Presbyterians. They made it clear. This is our belief. And that's where we get the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith from. They said, this is what the Presbyterians who've been persecuted for so many years, this is what they have been saying. In the midst of what they've been saying, here is where we differ with them. We differ with them on baptism. We differ with them on the nature of the church. We differ with them here. They made it very clear. Let me tell you what happened. They were persecuted. They were persecuted. For many years, they suffered martyrdom. They were burned. We now have Baptists who don't even know what Baptists believe. Remember that joke of the, the individual, I've repeated it here, who was being asked what he believed, and he said, I believe what my church believes. Well, what does the church believe? The church believes what I believe. Okay, but what does your church and yourself, what do you believe? Well, we believe the same thing. I wouldn't be surprised if if that's a reflection of us. That we, don't, we no longer think in categories of truth. And therefore, we can easily belong to, to any church. Any church. And even in starting churches now, we're just calling them community church. Lusaka, community church. That's all, community. Olusaka church. Doesn't matter. We don't want to put our confession in front and say, 
This is who we are. I remember many years ago when I was in South Africa and KBC didn't have quite the kind of resources it had. And I was trying to have our letter-headed paper printed. And under, right under Kautama Church, we wrote the words based on the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And I was preaching at a church, so I used that opportunity to say to the church pastor there, could you photocopy a few of these for, for us? And as they looked at it, said, yeah, but you know, this part here, can't you just remove it? Remove it. I said, why? Well, you know, it, it sort of puts some people off. So should we hide the truth because it's putting some people off? Well, let me tell you, it, our predecessors, it didn't just put people off. It put swords between their ribs. They paid their life's blood for it by saying, this is what we believe. Christianity is not getting stronger because we don't know what we believe. It's getting weaker. We've got nothing to testify of. Some Jesus or rather died somehow or other with some kind of blessings or other, and here we are. I want to assure you that kind of Christianity is not going to make the world stand up and take notice. It won't. It is essentially doctrinally to begin with. We take truth to the world. And then it is as we imbibe that truth that a certain lifestyle begins. As Paul says to Timothy, I mean to Titus, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. In other words, you are teaching sound doctrine, but teach a lifestyle that fits sound doctrine. But you cannot just be teaching people how to live if you haven't told them what to believe. You begin with what to believe. And then they build their lives based on what they believe. So, here's my appeal, brethren. If you are going to really and truly be a Christian in the biblical sense of the word, you must start by answering the question, what do I really believe concerning God, concerning Christ, concerning the things of God? What do I believe? I belong to a board that governs a Bible college somewhere. And that Bible college, to belong to that board, you have to append your signature to the doctrinal statements. You must believe one of three doctrinal statements. The first one is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Second one is the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. The third one, which most of you obviously won't know, is the three forms of unity. Yeah, I can see the question marks on the faces. You can Google afterwards. But the reason why I bring it up is because when it was first introduced, there were a few board members who were caught napping because they obviously did not know what they themselves believed. And it was interesting, I'm secretary there, when we collected the documents, all of them signed the three forms of unity. 
Obviously, they had no clue what it was. But it sounded like, okay, it's saying, you know, unity. So this Westminster thing, confession, whatever the confession is, I don't know. Baptist, definitely I'm not Baptist, so whatever it is there, I don't know. But I, I probably can fit here if only they knew that it had in it the Belgic Confession of Faith, Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. And in the Canons of Dort, you have the five points of Calvinism. If only they knew. What am I saying, brethren? We must know what we believe. And it's not like Christianity is starting with us. There is a history. We have come after a number of others. We can simply go to the classics as well and say, okay, which confessions of faith represent our position today? And we, as it were, pin our colors to the mast, raise our flag and say, this is who we are. And doesn't necessarily mean we will not cooperate with others, but what it means is that our cooperation with others will be less because there is that other level that we don't identify with one another. The center of all this is Christ. What do we believe about him? His person, his work, his own teachings, his commands, and so on. What do we believe? Well, John is telling us here that where this confession is a living reality, it is a proof of salvation. Let's quickly read that verse again. Verse 15, 1 John chapter 4. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he abides in God. That phrase at the end there, God abides in him, and he in God, is one that John has used a number of times in chapter 2, as well as in this same chapter. And thankfully, he used it in his gospel the first time, which is uh, in John chapter 15. And so it gives us some idea what he has in mind. What he has in mind, first of all, is the intimate connection, the, the connection between you and God that clearly shows that you are one. And then secondly, it speaks in terms of that connection being your life is hidden in God, and God's life flows through you. Let me say that again. It speaks in terms of this connection being your life is hidden in God, and God's life flows through you. In John 15, the picture that is used is that of a major stem and a branch. The branch is obviously connected, it's into the main stem and the life, the sap of the main stem is flowing into that branch and consequently the branch is producing a certain kind of fruit, an inevitable certain kind of fruit. And that's the picture that was being used by Jesus himself, quoted by John the Apostle. And it makes sense, therefore, that he should borrow it and use it again and again and even here. That where there is this genuine, sound, doctrinal confession, not simply as a lip service because you were made to memorize a catechism or memorize a confession, but it's born out of you, you can say, for this I am willing to live, for this I am willing to die. John is saying, 
That's not because you are simply a human being who's well-educated doctrinally. It is because of an essential connection between you and God. You are in God. His life, eternal life, is flowing through you, producing this kind of confession. And I think, brethren, it's important that we see Christianity that way, that it's doctrinal, but it's also experiential, that these two go together. Where doctrine is wrong, we question whether the experience is correct. Similarly, where we are seeing error in the fruit, immorality coming out of a life, and yet somebody seems to be saying the right things, we should also be questioning those right things that are being said, whether they are really coming from the heart. Because Christianity has the two together. I had a lot more on this, but time not being with us, I need to move on. The appeal there is test your salvation by this two. Test your salvation by it. Your belief and your life. What you believe and how you live. And if one of these two is wrong, go to Christ and seek him afresh. That's really what we're saying here. And how are we to do that? I've already suggested, read your Bible. Read your Bible and keep asking yourself the question as you read, is this what I believe? Especially as it teaches around the pre-existent Christ, the humiliated Christ, and the exalted Christ. His person, his work, his teaching, his commands. Ask yourself the question, is this me? And when you find yourself arguing and, and trying to dismiss and, and trying to re-explain something and coming up with obviously absurd explanations just so that somehow you may maintain your lifestyle or you may maintain your belief system, just know you are not a Christian. You've never been. And you desperately need salvation. So read your Bible. But let me add, read Christian classics. Read those books that have stood the test of time. That believers have read in a number of centuries. And they're still being published today. Clearly, they must be on to something. Read them. I'm amazed how many Christians don't read Christian books. It's staggering. And don't tell me it's lack of time because you are ever posting on Facebook and always liking, like, 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 and then you are saying you don't have time. We all do have time. It's our priority. I'm saying borrow, buy, whatever it is, but ensure you read these books, especially doctrinal books, and not simply you know how to be happy, how to have a good marriage and everything else, but doctrinal books, because you'll be asking yourself the question, is this true? Is this true? Do I really believe this? And here's my closing appeal. Don't base your belief system on today's popular TV preachers. Don't. One of the reasons why they are popular 
has already been taught us clearly in 2 Timothy and the last chapter. It's because people pay them so that they can continue peddling these soul-damning heresies. And when that becomes your doctrinal position, just know that you are basing your life on sand and you will pay for it in the end. I'm not saying never listen to them. But I would worry for you a thousand times over if you really begin to think that that which is being peddled there is the truth that is being mentioned here that we ought to confess. There's very little gospel truth here. Very, very little. Precious little. Most of it is nothing more than humanism. Humanism. That's all it is. Humanism. Sprinkled with a few religious cliches. It's not over until God says it's over. Amen, amen, amen. And that becomes your confession now, wherever you're going. It's not over until God says, oh, wait. Let's get back to real Christianity. Our generation needs it. It needs to see real Christians living in today's world, speaking the true gospel at whatever the cost. And if you fail the test, it's simple. I'm not asking you to then go around the building or read 10,000 books or even 10 books. When you realize this is not me, cry to Christ. That's all. Cry to Christ. Look to him. Plead with him. Simply say, Lord, clearly my heart and yours are not intimately connected. Lord, save me today. Save me. So that when I'm reading this book, I'm simply going, Amen. 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 This is true. This is truth. Blessed be God. And I have a real hunger that causes me to pay the price to buy Christian books. After all, I'm educated enough. I can read science. I can read mathematics. I can read so many other things. Surely I can read the Christian faith. I'll buy and I'll read and I'll say, yeah, this is glorious truth. I wish the whole world knew this. Father, save me. Save me today. Let me have this new life through Christ. The truth may permeate through me for the sake of this world. Amen.